0: You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 76. And today we're asking the question, what is due diligence? Let's get started. Hey, everybody. My name's David Proven, and today I'm joined by Greg Smith, who's both a safety lawyer and a safety professional, which makes him a very unique individual indeed. So welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety, and we examine the evidence surrounding it. But before we go any further, Greg, uh, welcome to the podcast. We've known each other for quite a while, and I'm a big fan of your book, Paper Safe, uh, The Triumph of Bureaucracy in Safety Management. And I know many of our listeners would have read read your book. But how about you tell us a little bit about about yourself and your background before we get stuck into due diligence?
1: Okay, thanks, David. Um, Pleasure to be here. I love the podcast, love listening in, always learn a lot. So yeah, I'm a lawyer. I've been a lawyer now for the best part of of 30 years, I think it is. Um, But I've been in and out of the law as well. So I started as a lawyer, practiced for a while, went and joined the army for a while, came back, practiced as a lawyer, um, went and worked as a safety advisor in an oil and gas company, came back to the law, uh, went out and worked as a general manager, safety and health in a sort of mining services business and came back to the law. So that, that's where I am now. I'm back practicing the law. I work three days a week for a, a big law firm and I run my own business two days a week, which gives me a bit more flexibility to, to do some interesting things. Yeah, that's kind of it's kind of my journey. Came into safety quite by accident. I started in industrial relations and employment and just ended up getting involved in fatalities. And the more I got involved in fatalities, the more I dove into learning about safety law, first of all. And then I thought, what sits behind safety? Why does this stuff keep not working? And that led me to a journey to explore more about safety, I guess.
0: Yeah, great. Greg, so PaperSafe has been a very popular book. I hear from a lot of my colleagues and and connections. It, it seems to have really resonated with with a lot of people. What was the motivation for you behind behind that book, particularly?
1: It just struck me. I, I, I've lost count of the number of fatalities I've been involved in in safety investigations and all sorts of things. But it just continued to strike me how large the disconnect was between all of the effort we put into producing safety-related material in workplaces and how little that process was reflected in the way her work was actually done. So there was two parts to it, that disconnect between our documented systems and what happens in practice and the complete inability for me as a lawyer to be able to rely on my client's documented safety management systems in legal proceedings. I often use this example, but I, I say to clients all the time, you know, in 25 years, I've never Never been involved in an event where I've been able to pick up a JHA and go, Oh, this is going to be helpful <laughs> because it never is. It just never is. And it's and it's never it's never the one off JHA that isn't helpful. It's when you go and pull out the same JHA for the same work signed by the same supervisor for the last twelve months and they're all unhelpful that you start to think, Oh, we've got a problem here. And and it's not like it's it's not like it's secret. I mean there's examples in the book and examples I use in my training where courts and tribunals have re- literally referred to the tick and flick process. You know, so everything that everybody in the workplace knows about their own systems is patently obvious to everybody who looks at it externally after an event. That of yeah, that here.
0: Yeah, it's great. And I think it's an idea for the time because it's, it's you know, this, this 2018 book, I think Paper Safe is, which is the same year that Drew Ray and I were writing this safety work versus the safety of work, which is a very similar sort of thing, which is what's in the safety management system and how is work done and what is it that creates safety?
1: And I I find it fascinating that the number of different disciplines sort of all landing at the same point at about the same time, but without any reference to each other. I think it certainly does. It says something about the way that health and safety is managed at the moment, I think.
0: Yeah, great. So, Craig, in episode 74, two episodes ago, we asked the question, is a capacity index a good replacement for incident count safety metrics? And that was based on a recently published paper by um, Michael Toomer and Professor Sidney Decker. And you reached out to me. Um, I'm grateful that you reached out to me afterwards and said, hey, look, the way that you are conceptualizing and talking about due diligence might not have been framing it in the most useful way for us, or, or maybe it was even wrong. And And what I said is kind of like, yeah, look, all safety professionals are bush lawyers and myself included. And so I thought it was a great opportunity to have you on the podcast to revisit that, that question, the question that we'll ask today, which is what is due diligence? Because it's really great to hear from a really, really experienced safety lawyer about what exactly due diligence is and what it isn't, and then how we can work our way through this episode to some practical advice for organisations. So if you're happy to start there, happy for you to start with, you know, your how you talk about due diligence or maybe some of the things that we were talking about that 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 didn't match that or how would you like to sort of start sharing your expertise around due diligence?
1: Yeah, there's a a frustration for me around due diligence in a couple of ways. One is, and and safety does this a lot, like safety conversation, safety leadership. Um, We take something and we stick safety in front of it and make it out like it's something different. And I think we're doing that with due diligence. We're saying, here's all the stuff you need to do as a leader. Oh, and by the way, over in this area called safety, there's this thing called due diligence, and there's not. If you're a company officer and you've got obligations to exercise due diligence, you, that's, that's not a new concept. You do that in terms of finance and strategic planning and appointment of CEOs and business initiatives all the time. The, so the idea of due diligence in, as a general context ought not be conflated with WHS legislation. Okay? So there's, and, and at, at one point, I think one of the core elements, I should say, of of due diligence in the WHS legislation is what it is designed to do administratively. Prior to the positive obligations of due diligence, company officers could only be prosecuted through a process known as accessorial liability, which means I needed to prosecute and convict the company. And if I convicted the company and could prove the same offence occurred with the company officer's consent, connivance or neglect, um, then I could prosecute that company officer. So it was a bit of a muddled and difficult path to go down. Due diligence creates a positive obligation on company officers in the same way that the the reasonableness elements of WHS create positive obligations on employees. So an employee's got a positive obligation to take reasonable care for their own safety. For example, company officers now have a positive obligation to exercise due diligence to make sure the company's meeting its obligations. In, in that sense, it makes sense and it's simplified a few things and there's a few other issues around it, but in broad terms, a good idea from that perspective, but not new, not novel, not exciting. The other thing that I think is even more problematic at the moment is that a lot of people are selling due diligence and I'll call them products or due diligence concepts based on a checklist considering the sub paragraphs of section 27 however many there are a to e or whatever it is and they're saying due diligence means these six or seven things and that's that is just in my view really misconceived really misleading and really wrong i've got some references and i'll flick them through so we can link them to the podcast but there's a a, a case called george hetherington which is a 2019 new south wales district court uh, decision and in that decision the judge makes it very clear that the boundaries of due diligence are not closed, and what is included in due diligence is not limited to those seven sub paragraphs. So we don't know what the extent of due diligence is yet. I mean, certainly, all of those things in those seven paragraphs are, are important; they're relevant; they make sense. But it's not—it's not a checklist. Um, you you cannot—you cannot go through and create a due diligence sort of safe work method statement type mentality where you go through and tick, tick, tick. It, it, that's not how it works. And in fact, the judge in that case referred back to a 1970 something full federal court decision called Universal telecasters. And the definition in universal telecasters, when they talk about due diligence, and, and that wasn't a safety case. So due diligence is this universal obligation. It talked about ensuring that there were proper systems to manage the relevant risks and adequate supervision to know that those systems were implemented and effective. And when we use supervision in this context, or the courts do, they're not talking about what supervisors do, which is the other misconception. Supervision is assurance, the whole of organisation understanding about whether these systems work. So whenever I'm working with organisations and clients, this is is the working definition, if you like, of what's reasonably practicable and what's due diligence, because you can't separate the two. So when we're talking about these general duties, What we are talking about, and this is the same for both of them, so reasonably practicable in in a working definition sense means, do we have proper systems to manage the hazards in the business and meet our legislative requirements? And do we have adequate assurance to know that those systems are in place and are effective? Now, of course you run straight into the problem here because proper and adequate are both subjective terms. And this is then the, the risk management element of it. It's the judgment call. It's the balancing exercise. Justice Mary Gordon in the High Court in Slivack and Lurgy, she used the phrase of, of balancing the risk against the time, cost and trouble of managing it. It, it. That's the judgment call that we're asked to make. Now, there can be a lot of technical evidence and expertise that goes into that depending on the risk. But basically, that's what we're saying. Do we have Do we have proper systems? Do we have adequate assurance to know that those systems are in place and are effective? Now, if you sort of hark back to PaperSafe for a moment, I think one of the things we are very good at is building systems. One of the things we are very poor at is the level of assurance that those systems are in place and effective. Now, I don't know. I don't know the motivation that Michael and um, Sydney put into this capacity index. I know that they were critical of injury rates, for example, as a measure of safety. Um, and they should be. Um, Injury rates from a legal perspective are not a measure of anything. They don't demonstrate reasonably practicable. They do not demonstrate due diligence. You will not find a defense lawyer in the country who can stand up in front of a magistrate or a district court judge and say, your honor, here's the evidence that my client had a safe system of work by virtue of the fact that their injury rate data is 4.2, which is 0.7 below industry standard or some such nonsense. We were talking about MT sheds. A moment ago, it's a a case in Western Australia where a company director was sent to jail for eight months. The traditionalists listening in might be comforted to know that that organisation's injury rate was zero. They hadn't had an incident in 20 years before someone died. So it's not really a measure of anything. So I think the capacity index was a search, one of many, to try and work out how we demonstrate and evidence these ideas of reasonably practicable so, to, to swing back around, David, sorry I got off on a ramble there, but how does that relate to due diligence? Well, due diligence, the way that that links into that is the obligation on officers to understand if the organisation has proper systems and to understand the extent to which they are implemented and effective. And part of that includes taking generally taking some sort of proactive measures to understand that, whether that's site inspections or commissioning reports or asking questions or whatever that might be and so i think one of the challenges for the industry in that context is how do we provide that information to our executives because we can't do it with injury rate data
0: yeah i think it's a great uh a great introductory ex- explanation greg thanks for that I, I like because we've got we've got due diligence as it's written into into legislation and then we've got a legal uh profession if you like that provides a first level interpretation of what that might look like in terms of what compliance with that might look like it but then obviously we don't know until we start testing these through through courts in terms of exactly how how the courts are going to interpret uh these things and then we build our our understanding of the concepts over over time so i mean that's why i think it's always so hard for organizations sometimes in this space to know exactly what what is going to be enough you know where is that bar exactly going to be placed for them
1: and it never will be placed exactly that's i mean that's part of the nuance of of these general duties that, that we face. They're, they are always going to be based on the particular circumstance of a case. So that's always going to be problematic. And this is why I think it is so dangerous to link any level of risk assessment at this level of an organization to a to a metric or a number or a graph or something like that. There has to be that continual level of inquiry and interest and challenge when i speak to company officers i talk about their obligations to bring an independent mind and challenge to the information they receive about health and safety um they, they cannot be passive recipients of the information and um and which and, and that's why you know when you look at the history of corporate australia with health and safety the fact that the fact that injury rate data still has such a prominent place I think is actually quite good evidence that we're really not that interested in safety because if we were, and if people were bringing, if, if, if boards were bringing the same level of acumen and inquiry that they bring to the financial reporting they receive, if they were bringing that level of acumen and inquiry to the health and safety data they receive, I cannot imagine we would still have systems of health and safety reporting that rely on injury rate data because as soon as anybody asks the question, what does that tell me about how well the hazards in my business are being managed? They'd have to realize it tells them nothing.
0: Yeah. I think, and I think you're, you're spot on. I like the way that you've conceptualized at a very high level, having proper systems in place to manage the hazards or proper systems to manage the hazards and, and, and some, and an ongoing knowledge of the extent to which they are in place and effective. So even as you just finished off there, even by, seeing a set of injury rates or even even many of the other things that boards um, often get reported to them i mean those fundamental questions which is how does this information let me know about whether we've got systems in place to manage the hazards other than inferring that because we haven't had incidents can i assume that the opposite is true that we've got systems in place well no i can't do that and the second is what what independent inquiry have have i undertaken as an individual to satisfy myself that they're in place and effectively working and that opens up a whole set of activities and, and lines of inquiry that may be not that common?
1: No, I think you're right. I, I think we need to be a little bit, one of the things I think we do need to be a little bit careful of, and I think is being overplayed, particularly for larger organisations, okay? And we do, we do have an inherent limitation here, David, in that all of the prosecutions of company officers in Australia, uh, apart from one uh, rose many years ago, which no one's really paid much attention to, have involved the prosecution of small business owners, many many, very closely related to the day-to-day work and in many cases, literally holding the ladder or hands-on doing the work. And so the context of due diligence there or consent connivance or neglect is very obvious because they are face-to-face with the hazards that are being ignored. We really don't have a good working concept yet of what somebody removed from the day-to-day operations might look like. There's a Canadian decision um, called BARTA um, which, which involves due diligence in the context of, of an environmental incident that looks at three levels of management from a CEO down to a general manager through to an operations manager and analyzes due diligence there. Um, it's a bit superficial. It's, a I think, about 84, maybe a bit later, 1984, 85. So it's quite old, would probably be looked at differently through the modern health and safety lens in Australia, but it does provide a bit of guidance. I mean, it certainly anticipates some level of site inspection from time to time. Um, it anticipates that site inspection would be independent. You wouldn't be led around and get to see what you, you know they want you to see. That you'd exercise some level of independence. Um, it certainly anticipates giving directions about safety. It certainly anticipates ensuring that safety initiatives are followed up and that when things are being asked to be done, they're followed up and closed out. So there's some pointers we can we can look at there.
0: Yeah, I think it was interesting, Greg, you mentioned these are, the way you're describing this, I think at those senior levels, it's just like, you know, the, the activities that that those individuals who who have the, that due diligence obligation would undertake. And when we did episode 74, most of the information that was was um, being discussed in that episode was what information might be provided to those officers and, and directors, not necessarily what activities they might undertake and what information they might seek out. And I think there's a different direction of that information. Yeah,
1: and, and I'll come to that. I'm mean, happy to talk about it because I do have, you won't be surprised, I do have some views. But there's a, when we talk about that issue of site inspections in particular, I think we have to be very cautious of. I think they are oversold as an exercise in due diligence for safety. I think that they're important. I understand why you want executive management on site. I get that. But think of the limitations. If you stop and think about the limitations, there's three critical ones. The first limitation is you assume that if I'm out there looking at something, I know what I'm looking at, and fundamentally many times you don't now i can I can address that. I can go with a subject matter expert and they can explain what I'm looking at so that that's fine. The second thing, and this is probably more concerning is any sort of assumption that when a member of the board rolls up to have a look at work, they are looking at the way work is normally performed now, if you think that's happening. Let's be fair, in some places it might, but most of the times, most organisations get pretty polished up before the board shows up. And then thirdly, even if you've got all of those things, you know what you're looking at and what you're looking at actually represents the way work is performed, um, you are seeing a tiny snapshot of the organisation. So in terms of providing any meaningful insight into health and safety, it's a tiny snapshot. I think it's useful from a personal liability perspective. Tick, I've gone, I've looked, I've made some inquiries, I've followed up, I'm doing something, but it, it doesn't. It doesn't really give you the level of assurance you want. So the next, I think, logical issue is, okay, well,
0: how do we how do we start framing this up? When you talked about those three limitations of site inspections as individual discrete activities that directors can do, because I could envision if, if you were looking for a checklist, it might be do an inspection once a month and tick, okay, I've gone and I've sought to understand and know the risks in the business. and And I think those limitations, that tiny snapshot... And it's sort of the tangent that I was thinking of in, in Australia, we somewhat recently had a banking Royal Commission, which actually looked into, I suppose, the role, well, in my, again, layman's understanding of it, looked in some ways to what's a board can't be involved in every single banking transaction that occurs. No. So what's the board's responsibility in in setting the conditions or if you like, the culture of the organisation that informs the way that decisions get made and what are the priorities? So then you're not really necessarily about point-in-time activities. Then you're trying to ask boards to set sort of tone, direction, culture for an organisation. So that was the tangent I was going to go down. If it wasn't for these discrete activities, is it more these broader expectations?
1: I, I think it is. David, again, it is a little bit conditional. So if you're a large organisation, lots of operations, you are you are so far removed from the day-to-day transaction business that you're never going to get a meaningful insight around that. Um, If you're a small family business, then the expectation, the due diligence expectation, I think is much more about knowledge of the specific hazards associated with the specific work because they're probably just outside your window on a day-to-day basis, which is why small businesses are prosecuted, uh, small business owners are prosecuted, not chief executive officers of mining companies is because they have a physical location connection, whatever it is with the actual hazard. And you know, health and safety is still very simplistic in that sense. The closer you are to the physical hazard, you know, the bloke holding the spanner type of mentality, still very, still dominates practical day-to-day safety in Australia. But I take my lead in this from the Pike River Royal Commission, so the underground coal mine explosion in New Zealand that killed 29 people, and the board, uh, sorry, the the Royal Commission they're talking about the role of the board said the board received information about time lost through accidents, which hasn't, isn't much help in assessing the risks associated with a high hazard industry, which you know, we've known for decades. But they went on to say the board appears to receive, have received no information, proving the effectiveness of crucial systems. So I, I think once you get to a certain size in terms of a board and an organisation, the conversation at board level is first and foremost, what are we as a board from a health and safety perspective concerned about? Or what should we be concerned about? And you can take guidance from external advisors, you can take guidance from your health and safety team or whatever it is. But what are, to adopt the language from Pike River, what are our crucial systems? Now, in, they, may, they may be hazards. So it might be as simple as working at heights or release of hydrocarbons or underground rock fall, so specific hazards. But I think particularly as you get larger i think the conversation needs to turn more to systemic issues what is the quality of our supervision critical control in most organisations what is the capacity of our people to identify and understand the risks associated with their work do our systems of training and competence work effectively and deliver the results that we need those sort of high level systems type issues and if you if you adopt that that system systemic way of thinking That way when you when you do get an incident that makes it way makes its way to executive leadership or the board, you can look at it through the lens of those overarching systems. Thanks very much for this incident report. You know, we understand we're going to replace these widgets. What does this incident tell us about the quality of supervision in our business? Is this incident reflective of a one off departure from otherwise effective systems, or is it telling us something more systemic? about the failures in our business. And in that context, context, I think the role of health and safety reporting is to inform the board about their concerns. So monthly or quarterly, whatever the reporting is, a monthly report, during the last month, these are the activities that we've undertaken as an organisation to inquire into the things that the board is concerned about. And based on those inquiries, this is what we've found. So it's a narrative, it's an explanation, It's not a number. It's not a graph. It's not, we have done 34 safety conversations and that means the traffic light's green. It's This month we've gone out, we've spoken to supervisors, we've observed supervisor behaviour. This is what we have looked for. This is what we have observed. Based on that, we are comfortable with the quality of supervision across our projects, something like that. And the proactivity from the board is from time to time saying there has been an incident in an industry similar to ours, we've heard about it. Um, we're concerned about that. Um, can you please go and get some a report done or do a review and come back to us next month and tell us that we're comfortable that our systems to manage that hazard are in place or effective. That kind of reporting and understanding.
0: So that two way. If I understand that, Greg, I suppose in that that you know due diligence being a, a continual sort of dialogue might not be right but i suppose the expectation of the directors and officers might be that the people inside the organization bring them the things that they're concerned about so therefore that the senior people should also be concerned about and and vice versa that the senior people directors pay attention to what's going on in the broader context of the organization adjacent industries other things and then bring into the organization the things that concern them if they were to be true in their organization as well
1: And there should be an ongoing conversation about whether the things the board is concerned about are the things the board still should be concerned about or whether that changes over time. And you know, you have to ask yourself the question, if if you have a board concerned with injury rate data, then no doubt that influences the way that injury rate data gets reported. If you had a board that was asking meaningful, informed questions about risk assessment and training and competence and supervision... That might inform the way that those things are delivered in
0: the organisation. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm sure that it would. And then I think you know around uh, also around critical systems around specific hazards. Like I think it's easy in hindsight to look at incidents, whether it's Pike River around underground um, like ground stability and coal mine collapse, or whether what we're seeing in Queensland with um, with methane emissions in underground coal mines, or what we saw in say with Samarco with um, with tailings dam wall stability and design and things like that. So I think there's also this 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 um, tangible um, ongoing dialogue that needs to happen around those major accident type of event risks depending on your industry and just a constant dialogue around the discussion, checking in, assurance of those critical systems.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'll give you an example. So we, November last year, it must have been, we had a collapse over here at Curtin University. It, it was quite notorious. I think one worker died, a number of injuries. So then, so to me, that's, That's a classic example of where if I'm a construction company and I hear about that, and I I asked the question of several people in construction and related industries, this has happened, what have you done about it? And several of them said, oh, we're waiting until the matter's all been investigated and reported so we can learn, you know, what the technical cause of the failure was. And I thought, well, that's going to be three years down the track. That's the way our judicial system works. You're not going to get anything before then. So straight away I thought, Jesus, good luck more importantly it's it's not the way of thinking. the way of thinking ought to be this catastrophic event has occurred. sophisticated organization would have had detailed systems in place to prevent precisely this sort of thing from occurring. Health and safety team you know, via the chief executive officer, CEO, health and safety manager, please go and give up, go and look at our processes for doing this and give us some comfort that our systems are robust enough or whatever the case may be.
0: yeah, because I mean. If you know, I mean that's a good way of looking at it. I've always been a bit um vocal, publicly vocal about things like no disrespect to the profession, Greg, because it's but like things like legal professional privilege and not sharing of information, not talking to each other. And we don't need to do that, do that now. But this idea of okay, these people were were, were scaffolders and it was a scaffolding incident. So if you're a company that does scaffolding, go pressure test your own systems. Um you don't need to know the failure mode before you go and pressure test what I, you expect. I think that them. yeah, I
1: think that's right. Yeah. I think that's right and and you know the the system of regulation of health and safety in australia and getting worse on the back of things like mt sheds is is wholly geared against the idea of learning we don't regulate safety in this country with an eye to learning and i think that's an enormous problem for us
0: so the pivot if we move into sort of some practical tips Greg, Mm because i know that you were i mean the 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 great thing i love about Talking with yourself is your time as a lawyer and your time as a safety advisor and 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 the way that you communicate through your books as well is um you want to see things change inside organizations. And and I think the way that we've responded to this increasing, even if it's a an irrational fear of prosecution or, or something like that in some large organizations or for some people, we've responded with all of this paper and all of these systems and processes and and forms. So maybe we can maybe we can start talking practically about what's a what's a different way to respond to this growing because the theory that i've got is as this this the legislation keeps getting tighter and tighter and tighter because we're not learning and improving then we just keep doing more you know more paper and more systems and and don't actually change anything mm.
1: so i think i'm not a i'm not a throw the you know the baby out with the bathwater approach to this but I, I do think there has to be some sort of rationalization. And, and the question I ask, the, the practical question I ask, and I know I know you do a lot of work around safety clutter, and I understand that work. And I think, well, when I say I understand it from afar, I understand. I obviously don't have your level of insight in, into what you're doing. And I think that's a concept that makes sense. I think there's some traps in this conversation that we're about, I'm about to have. Um, I'm not an advocate of moving from complexity to simplicity. we need to be careful of that because a lot of what we do in safety is not simple and by making it simple we are actually hiding a lot of risk so but i think the move we need to make and this is what i talked about in the book was this move from bureaucracy to clarity we need to put a lot more clarity around our expectations a lot more clarity around our process a lot more clarity around what matters and so i guess For me, the way I sort of stress test this with organizations or around checklists or take take any sort of checklist, take something like a pre-start checklist on a vehicle. You have to ask the question, how much time, effort and energy is the organization actually going to put in to making sure this checklist is completed in a way that meets the expectation of the organization? I, I complete it. Everyone completes one of these every day. We're filling them out in the pads, whatever we're doing. How many times in that enormous process do we come along, sense check the checklist, work with the people who've done the checklist to go through it, make sure everything they've done is correct and really stress test it because it's an important part of our process. If we're not doing that, why do we bother? If we're not going to put in the time and effort to make sure the process is meeting our expectation, then we should probably stop doing the process. And then once you realise which part of your process actually warrants the time and effort to make sure it's being done properly as opposed to being done, but it's being done properly and meeting expectation. Then I think that helps to isolate if you like how much process you actually need.
0: Yeah. I think great. I mean, that's a great, great story. I think with clutter, we probably, um, at least I know the conversation Drew and I have had our fear with that is people think that we're advocating with decluttering is just throwing a lot of stuff in the bin and what we're not we're actually advocating knowing how effective what you've got actually is or how useful what you've got actually is if it's if it's not useful then it's potentially clutter but it's you know some organisations are just going and um and fast forward I think Drew and I are going to talk about safety clutter on episode 80 but but the idea is that actually knowing what each uh, what each process contributes to the safety of work, and and that cl- I love the way you, you use clarity there, because you know there's a whole lot of ways to manage the fit for purposeness of a vehicle, the procurement strategy around the vehicles, the maintenance strategy around the vehicles, the individual inspection, and you make make, make us feel good with all of that admin going on. But if we pick the twenty or thirty percent of things that we think are going to make a big difference, and redistribute that hundred percent of effort and Put three times as much effort into the thirty percent most important things. We probably would shift the dial on yep. our management of risk. Yep. I, I mean,
1: I, I talk. About, I talk with people I work. For, I like to use the phrase that safety is an intellectual exercise, not a checklist. And I think if we can shift our thinking, and and, and look, let's be fair, safety is not the only profession slash industry slash function that suffers from this. You know, if you think back to human resources and performance reviews. Okay, performance reviews have probably got a sound psychological, functional basis, but for many people they become this just perfunctory checklist process that we have to do. The intellectual capital is not applied. You you see that in all sorts of business business functions. So safety is not on its own here. So the real challenge is how do we shift safety back into a meaningful conversation, an intellectual exercise, or something like that? And this is the role I think. If we get it right, so if we stop promoting due diligence under WHS legislation as a checklist of six or seven subsections and say to people, those subsections are part of a broader whole. And the broader whole is how do you, as an officer of this organisation, understand that you've got proper systems to manage the hazards in the business and understand the extent to which those systems are implemented and are effective to manage your hazards and so if we can if we can frame it up like that and have every company officer walking in to every board meeting or every safety meeting or every engagement with the organization with those two questions front of mind i think that becomes a real a really important shift in the conversation we're trying to have but my fear is that the response is to simply look for a different metric and the metric in my experience, is the conversation killer, and we need the conversation more than we need the metric.
0: Yeah, that's great. Um, great advice for directors. I, I wouldn't mind picking your brain as well, just um, on practical advice for safety professionals, because they might only see their board of directors once a month or once every three months or something like that. So, so you've been a safety professional in those in those roles. Uh, what would you be taking into to that conversation? Now, if you even if you've got a board that's expecting to see injury rate metrics every time that you see them what how would you maybe be trying to help them and maybe help the organization by reshaping that conversation do you have any sort of thoughts around advice for that
1: hand on heart i have abjectly failed to shift that <laughs> to shift that thinking when i've been in in that role which is part of my frustration with the role um and and to be fair to to be fair to the organizations and that i've been engaged with that's largely because the pressure for the types of safety information we've been critical of in this presentation is is not internal it's external so it's imposed on them by other stakeholders which is a real um, I, I think you now I, I, if i get this wrong slap me down but i think this, it's like that idea of demonstrated safety i think that you yep. speak yep. about. yeah yep. so we've got to demonstrate this for external stakeholders so that's a problem i think the best and, and I've talked, I've talked to individual managers at different levels of organisations who cannot influence the structure of the safety management system, or cannot influence the reporting mechanisms or or metrics. But I say to them, well, you still have these personal obligations. You need a structure to manage those. These are the two questions you need to keep front of mind. You know, in my area of responsibility, do we have proper systems? How do I know that those systems are implemented and effective? And I think I would say to safety professionals in the same way. you know, Fundamentally, uh, the role of the safety professional in an organization is to help the organization achieve safe outcomes. I think that is fundamentally supported by the idea of proper systems and adequate assurance. And so, I think health and safety people also need to be trying to re- reframe their mindset to ask those questions on a more regular basis. I mean, you just, just think about even at its most basic level, David. Think about a term of reference in an incident investigation, where the incident investigator has to make a finding about whether there were proper systems to manage the hazard that was revealed by the accident, and prior to the accident, what evidence was there that we had assurance about how well those systems were implemented. And I, I just think if we, even if we just did that, we shifted that thinking in our incident investigations, that would probably help us to reveal a bit more than we're getting in our organizations at the moment
0: yeah look i think that is um that's fantastic advice around what you could do even if it was your process like an instant investigation but also took out of that how aligned the role of a safety professional is with the role of a director in an organization in terms of the questions they should be the way they should be framing well the outcomes they're trying to achieve for the organization firstly and, and secondly the questions and and how they should be framing that in their mind and even even how you said earlier on in the conversation about bringing an independent mind to the conversation. We talk about the independence of the the cognitive, the social, the political independence of the safety profession as it's listening to what management is saying and what the workers are saying and what it's doing. So very much on the same team, which means obviously not on a different team for the rest of the organisation as well. Is there anything else you'd like to sort of share and throw out there around this idea of due diligence?
1: I uh, just just to say that, you know, the, operation, the operations, the people in the operational roles, the CEOs and below, they are very much the eyes and ears of the board. So if the board has to exercise due diligence, there's independent things they can do, but they rely very much on the rest of the organisation being the eyes and ears and bringing the information back for them to, to critically challenge. And so you know, the health and safety profession in an organisation very much fulfils that role. And over and above that, they feel they provide... Or should be providing the expertise to really um, give effect to that eyes and ears role. But ultimately, the board has got to define what they're concerned about because that governs what the organisation is going to pay attention to. And as we've touched on, if it's the injury rate number, then the eyes and ears of the organisation will be listening and looking for that. If it's proper systems and adequate supervision, then perhaps the eyes and ears look and listen for something else.
0: Great summary. So today we asked the question: What is due diligence? And Hey, happy with that answer, Greg. Do you want to have another go at the, the elevator pitch answer for what is due diligence? The elevator pitch
1: answer for me for what is due diligence
0: is whether the individuals
1: exercising it understand if there are proper systems to manage the hazards in the business and the extent to which they know whether those systems are implemented and effective.
0: Perfect. Thanks so much, Greg. Thanks for reaching out the other week and um offering uh your support around these ideas. Yeah, you know, we haven't gone to to research, but paper safe and, and and three decades of experience with OHS lawyers is, is more than enough expertise um, and, and credibility for me. And um, I learned a lot in this conversation. It's actually going to help me with something I'm about to do next week. So good luck with it. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much for your time, Greg. Uh, that's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Send any comments, questions, or ideas for future episodes to us at feedback at